Tonight's talk is about the 100,000 Genomes Project, and I am delighted to introduce our speakers for tonight. Uh, first one will be Dr. David Bentley, who is Vice President and Chief Scientist at Illumina. During his career, he's been a senior lecturer at London University, and later the head of human genetics, and founder member of the board for management at Sanger Centre, and played a leading role in the Human Genome Project. His long-term interest is the study of human sequence variation and its impact on human health and disease. His current research is focused on fast, accurate sequencing of human genomes for benefit in healthcare, with early applications including rare genetic disease and cancer. Our second speaker will be Professor Mark Caulfield, who graduated from medicine in 1984 from the London Hospital Medical College and trained in clinical pharmacology at St. Bart's Hospital, where he developed a research program in molecular genetics of hypertension. He was appointed director of the William Harvey Research Institute in 2002 and was elected a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences in 2008. In 2013, he became an NIHR senior investigator and was appointed as the CEO and chief scientist for Genomics England, from, uh, which is his current role. So if you um, please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much for the kind introductions and thanks to, to all of you for coming. Um, as you can gather, I'm the warm-up act for the main event that follows. Um, in truth, though, we have been partners for many years, uh, both recently a very enjoyable and fulfilling partnership with Genomics England and the 100,000 Genomes, and also some 15 years ago as well when we started to look at the diversity of human genetics from another perspective, but that's for perhaps another time. Um, I will provide a, a quick gallop uh, through uh, the perspectives of genomes and how they can be used and how we're trying to sequence them and make them effective, uh, and obviously Mark will then take over, so uh, let's uh, get started. Uh, I thought I'd show you a genome to start with. You might not be expecting that. Um, but to, to, to see a genome, that, that's the genome. Um, that is uh, the 46 chromosomes. They are in pairs, one from mum, one from dad. And you can see the red dye there on the end of, which one is it? Chromosome 6, um, which, uh, which reveals the, 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 the combined parent com of, of chromosomes to, to bring in the genome. Uh, you can still see the genome at slightly higher resolution. When you tease out this material, you can see the threads and the beads on the wire. Some proteins are still attached to the DNA. And these threads are really important because that gives the properties of linkage of genetic information, the linear coding of sequence information in, in DNA. Uh, and once you remove the proteins, you can still see those wonderful fibers stretching out from the, the skeleton of the chromosome itself. From that moment on, you can't see any more, and the rest is done with models and inference. And of course, this is the famous DNA double helix, uh, which actually encodes the information digitally through its structure. And that is what we spend our time doing coding, not the atomic structure or molecular structure, but the order of the bases, A, C, G, or T, uh, in, in that helical structure. So a quick summary of statistics. This is what a sequence looks like. You see some colored bases which represent differences between people, for the sake of argument, uh, and that's where it becomes extremely important for this kind of project. And the overall statistics for the information in the genome, three billion bases per genome. You each have two of them, so that's six billion bases in every cell in the body. Uh, containing information encoding roughly 22,000 genes uh, and there are these 3 million differences, maybe a bit more now as we discover more about genomes between two genomes and these variations of course reflect on us as individuals and the entire, entire sequence reflects on us as humans. 
Uh, just to give the, the local flavour to this story, there is a rich history of DNA in Cambridge. It goes back to Watson and Crick and the discovery of that helix uh, here. Uh, probably about 50 paces from here, actually. Much of the work was done. Uh, moving on to Fred Sanger in 1977, who uh, uh, developed a method for, for decoding the DNA for Sanger sequencing. Uh, through to John Salston, who established the Sanger Centre, director, my boss for many years, uh, and led the, uh, the UK contribution to the Human Genome Project and projects that followed from it. Uh, through to, uh, to Shankar and David, Balasi Brahmanian and Klenerman, uh, you can see the lab environment is rather improving in this point. <laughs> uh, it helps the discovery and innovation. Uh, and Shankar and David, of course, developed the, the sequencing technology, which I'll just briefly touch upon just for the sake of history and to familiarise you with it if you're not familiar with it already. But all this is the Cambridge environment, and it's been a very rich environment to continue to evolve how we look at DNA in Cambridge uh, and indeed with the rest of the world. Uh, so this is a brief summary of the method. I'm not really trying to aim to describe the method to you. But it does illustrate that we are looking at individual DNA molecules which are attached to glass surfaces, microscope slides. So we're working very much at the microscopic level, which gives us a power to do a huge amount of sequence in one go on a microscope slide or a slightly modified slide. And we grow the DNA into clusters. Uh, and we actually have developed, indeed one of the very forerunner developers of the chemistry is right here in the audience, uh, so this SBS chemistry. And, and thus what this is, is, is essentially repeating the base-by-base -base synthesis that is a natural process, but in the, in the course of repeating that synthesis on every molecule at once, incorporating a fluorescent dye to a highly modified nucleotide on the top on the right, uh, which illustrates how you can then visualise these fragments by taking repeated photographs uh, of the images, and you can see there the images building up. The same region is photographed at every cycle, and all of you can see the sequence of colours along a particular cluster, uh, which actually allows you to read the sequence. And of course, we don't do it ourselves, it's all computerised and automated. Uh, so a huge amount of computing, of chemistry in particular, uh, molecular biology goes into this process to make a sequencing system that sequences genomes today at scale uh, and with accuracy. This was a disruptive technology. You can see there the scale, uh, something like a million-fold growth in output, which is a pretty unprecedented growth, uh, and from a $3 billion genome, which I was involved in for seven years, to a $1,000 genome in three days. Could be less, could be a bit more. Uh, and you can see there the Human Genome Project finished before this explosive growth in the technology, and the 100,000 Genome Project started in 2014, which gives you an idea of where we were four years ago. Uh, this did represent a tipping point for science as the cost plummeted uh, as a result of this microscopic uh, imaging and, and, and scale up. And as a result, the number of genomes really has risen. We are over a million genomes in the world, a hundred of thousands of which you're about to hear more about. And that really gave rise to this era of being able to consider genome sequencing a personal or individual profile of a genetic, of a complete, near complete genetic information, which might be of benefit in healthcare and for research and for other interests. Um, just to move from the genome to genetics, which is really the, the, the heart of the interpretation of, of genetic disease and, and also cancer, and I want to draw the perspective of these two important areas, rare genetic disease, uh, so uh, you inherit from birth, from mum and dad, uh, you inherit 
their genomes, and you may inherit variations from the parents. Uh, and as a result, you may already have risk factors, or you may actually have a mutation which causes a disease uh, at the time of birth, and sometimes these diseases manifest very early, and Mark will tell you more about those in a moment. Uh, but you also have uh, the somatic variation. So as the cells develop to form the body, starting off from the original zygote, uh, right through the embryo and, and through adult life, uh, there are further mutations which are collected, which are accumulated in the somatic uh, process. Uh, and some of those, of course, if we are unlucky, they actually develop into a cancer process. So you have both the germline and rare genetic disease and risk factors, and you have the somatic, which is the cancer-specific variation within a tumour, uh, which actually are the areas which we're looking to define what those changes are in either the normal genome or the cancer genome in order to have a better idea of just what has gone wrong and perhaps A, improve the diagnosis and the accuracy of it, the precision of the diagnosis, and secondly, perhaps to be able to do something about it. If we know the target has been mutated, there's a possibility to look more accurately why a drug doesn't work, what would be the right target to develop a drug for, and in other ways to look at the prognosis, the diagnosis, uh, and the therapeutics surrounding it, the management of a disease. Um, so just to look at personal gene inform genome information for a moment, this is a concept that has really been looking at, we've been looking at for 14 years or more. And you can see that on the, on the left-hand side we have the accumulated knowledge of the entire research community and genetic community, which has annotated a genome to reveal the genes, the mutations, uh, and, and the clinical uh, consequences of risk variants that arise within it. And you have a personal sequence, which in this case might be one of the 100,000 genomes uh, owned by the individual or the doctor. And put the two together, the public information and the individual sequence, you end up with a, a clinical decision which is perhaps informed by the genetics alongside all the other clinical information. Also important is the possibility of returning the results back into the pot uh, to actually further enhance the research uh, uh, process and the information available to research. Because what actually happened... Oops. What actually happened to the patient uh, as a consequence of the decision taken is extremely important to improve the understanding of, of the genome and to make a difference to the next patient who might have the same uh, characteristics. Just to go through a couple of cases of the principle of how we do this, going back to 2012, these were in fact the pilot studies that really helped to stimulate discussions in the UK with the prospect of starting such a project. Here's a case, uh, undiagnosed uh, young boy, uh, we actually did a sample to answer in four days uh, of, this of the whole genome and actually filtered down from 13,000 possible genes to uh, gradually focus down which ones were functional mutations, which genes were linked to diseases. So we accumulated background information and actually honed it down from the three billion bases down to six or possibly down to one candidate that really stood out. Uh, as the genome essentially told us what, what was essentially likely to be the problem. And sure enough, it was. Collaboration with Stephen Kingsmore over in Radies uh, actually revealed a mutation. And when you look at the gene it lies in, it completely explains all the phenotypic characteristics which the doctor was looking at. So there's a wonderful convergence of the genome on the clinical observations that essentially uh, revealed uh, that this was the, the actual mechanism of the condition in this case. Cancer is a little different because, of course, the diagnosis of cancer has already happened. You've got cancer. Uh, but in this case, uh, perhaps the really important, significant event is once again you have a patient, in this case not responding, uh, and this was a pilot with Charlie Swanson. Uh, again, we sequenced several tumours as well as the normal. Uh, and in this case, by comparing the normal to the tumour to look for what's specific to the tumour that has made it a cancer, 
we actually see these amplifications. Uh, and remarkably, of course, once you see that this, uh, if you remember from two slides ago, this suddenly reveals a whole area of biology that has previously been done lying on this person's genome to reveal that these mutations amplify a signaling process beyond control, leading to cancer as opposed to controlled growth. And furthermore, illustrates uh, one of those very targets that I've already mentioned, where there are drugs already available to potentially ameliorate the condition. So back in 2012, we returned this information to the clinician uh, to, to, to say this is what we'd found, uh, to see if they would actually, could actually be treated. So those are the concepts that underlie rare genetic disease and cancer, and they've been used ever since in the study and, and the work we're talking about today. Um, I'll just talk into why whole genome sequencing is so important, uh, because there is a huge range of differences, uh, mutations. Uh, they can be single-based mutations, uh, variations in copy number, expansions of small repeats, large rearrangements, and in the mitochondria, not just the nuclear DNA, can be altered. And all of these can cause disease. And unless you can find all of these in a single gene test, genome test, uh, then, of course, you risk missing some, and therefore you risk missing diagnoses. And that is a continual, ongoing obsession of all of us to try to diagnose every case and have a technology and analysis that is able to catch all these mutations and to layer them on the patients and to interpret the consequences of those mutations along the manner I've already described. Uh, the impact is huge. And I just uh, a couple of vignettes of results from small focus studies. We have seen in focus studies on rare disease that we can get two-thirds of the cases diagnosed. It's a very focused study, so we expect a high level of success from the patients put in. But we also find in cancer, too, that, that, that perhaps almost all of the acute lymphocytic leukemia patients, we can actually find likely or definite driver mutations from a whole genome test. And so you start to see the existing panel of tests used in cancer clinics actually collapsed into one test, which makes it much simpler uh, if the genome really becomes the general currency for, for treatment. Uh, looking at the global opportunity, I'll let you read the numbers, but you can see the genome or genomic readout uh, can actually play a role in many, many areas from very early on, reproduction, prenatal testing, through newborns, those potential intensive care cases uh, which suddenly manifest at birth through to generally genetic disease. Infectious disease, of course, microbes have genomes too, so DNA sequencing applies equally well to the microbes in the environment or the microbiome in your gut, uh, and it's very important to discover more about that. Oncology, I've mentioned, and common disease, uh, and, and those that kill you in later life, uh, are extremely prevalent, and are potentially what we have is a launch pad towards these studies. Coming back to this project for a second, this is a, a recent timeline to show how collaborations preceded the, the introduction of the major uh, programs, both with the CIUK and with the Wellcome Trust and the Medical Research Council. And then, of course, the influence of David Cameron, who himself had his eldest son die of a rare genetic disease, which I'm sure made a huge difference to his ability to understand, engage, and drive this program, uh, and, and to really provide funds for it from, from the government, to recognize the importance of the program, uh, and Mark might say more of that. We embarked on a collaboration pilot with the University of Cambridge before the 100K project was, was signed, and the sequencing uh, is done in the Hingston Laboratory, just down the road, uh, the Wellcome Trust Genome Campus, uh, which is clinically accredited, 
uh, to the ISO standards to ensure standards of production of the genomes. And of course, late last year, we finished the 100,000th uh, sample was sequenced going through the lab. Uh, and this is just a picture of the lab and the team uh, to illustrate where the work was done, uh, just nearby uh, in, in, in Hingston. Uh, and, and, and just to give you a flavour of what the laboratory looks like. It's no longer the Panton Arms, I'm afraid, in Cambridge. It's, it's gone up a bit since then. So with that, I'll turn over to Mark uh, Caulfield. We'll take questions at the end. Uh, and Mark will uh, say, be the main event. So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's an absolute pleasure to be here in Cambridge with my partner David in this programme. And uh, I'd like to thank Alumina for inviting me and the Cambridge Science Festival too. So I'm going to talk to you about the 100,000 Genomes Project, which is a project for you, by you, actually, um, because Genomics England is a wholly owned Department of Health and Social Care company, and it was formed to assist the NHS to deliver this in at scale across our nation. So as uh, David suggested, this was announced uh, after a summit held at the most unlikely of places, the London 2012 Olympics, where scientists came together with uh, the government ministers and also some people from other governments around the world. And it was suggested the moment was right for a country with a free point of care health service to transform the genomic medicine offering by using whole genome sequencing and direct healthcare. And so the project was then announced and the new sequencing centre, which was opened by our current Prime Minister, um, is uh, in Hingston. And then we move forward to a point that was very important, where the Chief Medical Officer of England wrote a report with experts, some of whom may be in this room, describing how this was and you are generation of genome. And this is a moment where this can be used to bring benefit to healthcare. And on the 1st of October 2018, the new genomic medicine service opened, and I'll say a little bit about that. And on the 5th of December 2018, we sequenced the 100,000th genome. So what is the 100,000 Genomes Project? It's reading as much as we can today of the three billion letters that make up your genetic code. So it's a whole genome, it's not part of a genome, it's as much as we can read. And in our program, we're focused on disorders where there could be a tractable benefit, a clear benefit in healthcare. And that might be something that we could return to the health system which will be usable today. So the program is focused on rare disease, cancer, and infection. And I'll say a little bit about each of those. Originally, we were hoping to have more cancer participants. We are actually still building out the cancer program, but we've over 95,000 people engaged in the program today. And our participants are very active. They, uh, we have a participant group of 35 of the participants, and they sit in many of our committees and structures, helping us to structure the program around the needs and aspirations of patients with these disorders. Because a genome is large in size, we have a big data centre, which is in Caution, Wiltshire, in a secure government data centre, and that's 21 petabytes in size. If you've got a laptop, you won't get more than a couple of genomes on a laptop, maybe three, uh, and it will be very hard on a single laptop to analyse those. So you need a big data centre. The other thing about a big data centre is it gives us a chance to allow democratic access to scientists across our land, irrespective of their own ability to actually have a big data centre in their own location. When we started, we recognised the importance to the legacy of involvement of the NHS. This had to be done by the NHS for the NHS for a future to be sustainable. 
So working with NHS England, we created 13 genomic medicine centres of excellence, and there was a fantastic one here, which is still here, in east of England, based here in Cambridge at Adam Brooks Hospital, uh, led by Lucy Raymond, one of the clinicians at that hospital. And those 13 genomic, genomic medicine centres enrolled all the people, obtained informed consent, because this is a project based on informed consent, and that reached over 85 NHS organisations across England. And, by the way, one of the first things I did in 2013 was to go to Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and they've all been inside the programme. That means in, across England, 1,500 frontline NHS staff worked on this programme, and that's really important because if we want to mainstream this in medicine, getting the health system involved, getting them doing this with us is so important to the legacy. But because the precise way in using this information isn't always clear, we assembled a coalition of researchers from across the world, and this coalition of intellects have volunteered their time, and over 3,250 have volunteered to date from 24 countries, to work on the data inside our secure data centre to drive up its value for clinical care. So if you want to think about that, what we've done is we've positioned the research engine of our universities right up against our healthcare system, such that in this programme we've been able to innovate inside the university and then bring that into direct healthcare within sometimes three or six months. So this is a layout of the project. At the top, what you can see is that it's based on patient consent. And the 13 genomic medicine centres which are shown there across England, they enrolled all the people, uh, sent the samples through, provided the clinical data, and then we obtain, with the patient's permission, all longitudinal health data that we can get from your electronic records. And what this allows us to do is to build up for a first time a life course picture of these diseases, what's happened to people on their journey with them, and to examine how we as a society could help these people more and perhaps even lead to better outcomes. We have a biorepository which sits in the middle of England in Milton Keynes, which is where the samples are looked after. And then our sequencing centre is run by David and the team from Illumina who are over here. And they provide us with the genomes and that sits in the secure data centre. And the National Health Service have access to that data in identifiable format if they're caring for you, as clinicians do in the health system. But we remove the identifiers for researchers and over 3,000 researchers work on de-identified data. Because we want to get as much advantage for patients as possible, we've formed a partnership with over 100 companies, and about six or seven of them are working with us in detail. And alongside researchers from our academic entities, they have solved diagnoses for us that we might not have found ourselves. So this is the ecosystem and infrastructure we've established, and this is where we are today. So you can see that a lot of people have enrolled in the programme, we have 104,000 whole genomes. We've returned over, it's now actually, this is slightly out of date, it's now 74,000 genome analyses to the National Health Service. Um, that's 18,000 cancer patients and 52,000 people from families with rare disease. And today, we're taking on unmet needs. So, in rare disease, these are people who've not been able to achieve an answer from routine healthcare, and this seemed a very good focus of the genomes. And so one in four or one in five of the participants and their family are getting something that's potentially a diagnosis. The NHS then confirm that themselves and return it to the patient. But to my surprise, about half of the cancer cases contain a feature in the cancer genome that might pave the way for a clinical trial or indeed a medicine that's available on the National Health Service. 
So this is our analytical pipeline. It all looks rather complex. And just before I show you this, I need to tell you that there's no genome in our program that moves as fast as this one, and you'll see why. But this is what we're doing every day, 24-7, in between 10 and 35 hours, because the genome is quite complex. Sometimes it's a bit quicker. When we have all the right clinical data, the DNA flows into our sequencing center, and then we get out a list of uh, letters from the genome. We annotate that for the variants that you possess, and then we rank those variants, which is tiered variants, and then we have some annotation companies that support us with annotating the evidence, and then we create a report that's returned up here to the NHS for clinicians to look at, and then it goes off into this thing, uh, which is the researchers, um, and they get that data simultaneously. So what are we sharing with our participants? Well, obviously, we're sharing information about their main condition and things that they might be able to get an answer for why they're like they are with a rare disease. Maybe not for everyone. Maybe only a few possibly access to a therapy. And then in cancer, we're telling them about the trial opportunities and things that they might get. We also included some additional findings. These additional findings are about serious things, which if you knew I knew about them and I withheld them from you, you'd be pretty upset. So these are things where we're confident we could do something about this if you knew about it. Also, we have given the parents the option of choosing to have carrier status return for certain disorders. And about 88% of people opt for the full range. So this part is part of your informed consent, so you're going to get that. But these things you choose to have. And later this year, we're really going to test this at scale as to how this works and our participants' reaction to receiving it. Going to focus on rare disease. David um, hinted at some of the advances that are possible from this. If I share with you that there are about seven to eight thousand rare diseases, we're not really sure how many at the moment because we keep finding new ones. But that we worked on 1,200 disorders. If you add up the total number of people affected by a rare disease, it's about five percent of the UK population. So that's one in 20 of us who have a rare disease. And so what we wanted to do is to focus on unmet need, people who couldn't get answers from routine, usual care. And so uh, we standardised the data collection, but we used a particular form of data collection which allows us, because we might have only one family with a disease in Britain, to share our data with another country where there's another family and therefore get line of sight on an answer for both families. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that um, in a moment. We automated the analytics and the NHS owned the diagnosis and confirmed how we analyze the genome. So this is a distribution of diseases that we've worked on across the different areas. But I want to tell you a little bit about this girl here. This girl now is about six and a half and she, when she was four months, uh, it got uh, developmental delay, so she fell behind her milestones, and then she started to develop fits, seizures. So in the time you're in this room, she would have had one seizure, and this was happening every hour or two, uh, all day, and sometimes in the night. And gradually, her intellectual capability deteriorated. We found that she had a change in a sugar transporter that was only in her. So in other words, when the sperm and the egg had come together at conception, a new change had developed in the DNA, which caused this sugar transporter not to work. Every time her brain sugar inside the blood-brain barrier, there's a barrier that protects your brain, every time it dropped down, it triggered a seizure. 
Now, for this girl, there is a thing you can do, which is to give her a high-fat diet. So she eats a high-fat diet every day. And in your and my brains, we have a starvation protection mechanism where we can convert fat to sugar. And this means she now, with her diet, treats her own epilepsy and has shown some considerable improvement in her fits, so she doesn't have so many, and no anti-epileptic work for her. And the other thing that's happened to her is that she's shown some developmental improvement. What if you and I had found this earlier? What would the consequences be for that person? Would we have been able to avoid some of the harm? Let me describe to you the journey that this young girl's genome went on. So in her three billion letters, she had 6.4 million variations. So these are changes in the DNA, of which 677,000 of them were rare, of which 2,826 changed a protein and might be disease-damaging and causing. And then 67 were different from her mum and dad, and one of those 67 was the barn door cause of her problem. Now, this girl had been through several, multiple testing in several different hospitals and not got an answer. And for her, that's paved the way for the treatment. But I do want to be clear that this will not necessarily bring a treatment for everybody in the program. It may only be for a few. Let's look at a few more cases. This is a mum's account of her child. So this is a five-year-old with rare disease. And in fact, when uh, we sequenced the 100,000th genome, this lady was interviewed on television. Her daughter was very withdrawn, and she had a rare condition called GAMT deficiency. Don't worry about what it is. But in essence, she, her mum thought she was going to die very shortly. She would end in a wheelchair, and she had a major degenerative neurological disorder, which nobody knew what it was. And she was locked away. She was uncommunicative. She couldn't seem to interpret her environment. After we found the change in her DNA, six months later, with a diet based on something that we eat every day, creatine, ornithine, and arginine, these are different uh, chemicals, uh, she is a new child with learning new skills every day, free of epilepsy. And her quote at the bottom says really it all. Um, and the expectation was that she would die. Now, she is never going to be entirely normal, but this is quite life-changing. It's difficult to articulate, if you've not experienced rare disease, how much an answer means for somebody. Imagine living for years, and I'll show you in another case or two, possibly, uh, with, with no diagnosis. So here's an example. It's a median of three years to get no answer in the NHS, uh, or to get an answer at all. And this man had given up. He waited th almost 30 years, and he only entered the program because his sister became pregnant, and he was really worried that he, she was going to have a child like him, and he had intellectual disability. And I emphasize this to you, because people who are affected by these diseases, they feel a responsibility, even if they did not transmit this. They feel a responsibility for others who might be affected, and they're very keen to avoid that at all costs if they can. We found that he had a mutation that changed was only in him. It was a new mutation, but his sister could be reassured. Her baby's been born. We tested them both, and she does not have the mutation. And he helped a second family get a diagnosis, because we found this in him. We were able to make a diagnosis in another family, and this is quite common. And this is why we need the data all together to support the National Health Service to get answers for people who couldn't get answers when we split the data into tiny pieces in local hospitals. 
Here's another success story, a 10-year-old child who's had recurrent admissions to hospital with severe infections. She's admitted with severe chickenpox. She had changes in a gene that affects her immune system, and she's had a curative bone marrow transplant and no further admissions to hospital. She only goes to hospital now for her bone marrow transplant to be checked. And this is a, a, another example, a five-year-old boy with unexplained anemia, developmental delay, short stature and constipation. He had a diagnosis that is a pretty terrible disease, diamond black fan anemia. Don't worry about what it is. We ran an analysis of his genome and found actually he had a defect in the thyroid hormone receptor. Now thyroid hormones sort of govern your metabolism. And by replacing his thyroid, his anemia has improved, he's going to improve his short stature and his constipation will improve. But we won't necessarily make as much difference to the developmental delay because that may be fixed. Again, what if we found this? But this is an example of how a genome changes the clinical diagnosis people like me might make. So sometimes, um, you know this already, we get this wrong because we like patterns and we shoehorn things into patterns and when we don't see a pattern, sometimes we'll say it's this syndrome and throw out information that's important. And here you can see how the genome gave us the diagnosis. So we're making headway now. Because we chose the most challenging diseases, we're not up at the 66% you saw from David earlier, but we now are at over 40% for people with intellectual disability and between 40 and 50% for many eye diseases. So this is good. And by having the coalition of researchers, we will get more diagnosis. They're already doing this for us. Now, this is complex, but cancer is much more challenging. So if you have cancer, the diagnosis is often made by taking a small piece called a biopsy and putting it into a preservative called formalin. Formalin is very damaging to DNA. And um, I'm showing you here uh, the genome of a patient with prostate cancer. It's the same genome on the left and the right. It's from the same man. On the left, this is the fresh tissue genome. And it's just arranged. It's just the genome arranged in a circle. And this is the one that's been exposed to formalin. This one has cross-links between different parts of the genome, so bits of the genome are linked together. And there's not many of them, you can see that. This one looks like a child has scribbled on the genome, and this is the impact of formalin. It causes lots of cross-links, and it makes it very hard to read. And we lost 17% of one element of the genome in this patient. So that's not a healthcare product you and I can trust. So we've had to re-engineer 400 pathways for molecular pathology towards a fresh tissue route and explore other, other ways of preserving the tissue. So these are the different cancers that have been enrolled, and you see they distribute, as you would expect, across common cancers. And we're still working towards extending and expanding the cancer program, uh, and that's how it's landed so far. But I wanted to show you this, which is how usable is this information? So if we just confine ourselves to the 136 or so genes that are known to influence cancer, drive its development, possibly stratify the ability or may allow us to choose a therapy because the feature relates to a pathway where the therapy will work, we can see in about half of the patients you can have either an actionable or potentially actionable change in the clinic that could profile you for a trial or something else, uh, medicine on the NHS. And this may come down, but actually, even if it comes down to 20 or 25%, that's a lot better for people with cancer. 
There's two things to say about cancer. Cancer has a tumor molecular signature, and that's becoming increasingly important in the cho choice of therapies. But also, the amount of changes in the tumor genome, because we compare the cancer genome to the genome you inherit from your mom and dad, and that allows us to identify the changes that are driving the cancer. The amount of changes in your cancer often governs the outcome. So if you've got lots of mutations, lots of changes, it may influence the outcome and drive it towards a particular uh, adverse position. Just to share this family here. So this is, circles are women, squares are men, uh, and diagonals sadly mean people have died. This lady was not from an at-risk community for breast cancer or had no family history of breast cancer. Yet in her tumor, we found what's called a BRCA2 mutation. Now, you may have heard of these type of mutations. And this was not expected. And we found it also in the DNA she'd inherited from her mum and dad. So she was BRCA positive. So she got the opportunity to be in a trial that she would never have got from routine care with um, a laparib, a special medicine for cancer. But then her family have gone on, in part, to be tested with her daughter also being BRCA2 positive. Now, what this means for her daughter is she can choose to enter intensive breast screening um, from the age of 30, which would never happen through routine care. She can choose other approaches to manage that position. But she has some uh, opportunity to change the course of this. Her mum finished the trial and is now going to have uh, her ovaries removed because BRCA2 can drive ovarian cancer and she's no longer of childbearing age. But over here are the men. The men, if they have BRCA2 mutations, are at increased risk of prostate cancer. So you begin to see the family-wide consequence of this result. Some people won't choose to know these things. That's their choice, and that's the right thing to offer them. But there is a possibility for us to alter the case. Now, if we think about cancer, often we see it when it's advanced, and we may not be able to cure it. What if we could detect through screening, focused on the people most at risk, the opportunity to prevent that and get it when it's early? Here's a final case. This is a man. Uh, who uh, had colon cancer. Um, this is his body. Uh, so we've made a cut across the middle of his body, not real one, just in case you're worried. Uh, and this dark area here is colon cancer. So um, he had standard testing in the NHS. Um, nothing particularly found. He received usual care. This got bigger. And then they did another biopsy, sent it to us. And we found he had a hereditary predisposition uh, don't worry about what this is, to colon cancer, which he'd always had. He just was presenting very much later than people usually do. And so this has meant that he's got a very advanced cancer therapy called an immunotherapy through a trial, and that shrunk. Now, we're not going to cure him, and I think you probably know that, because this is too large and it affects too much of his liver. But, uh, but if we can give him a better quality of existence and make that uh, a good experience for the remaining time he has left, Maybe that is something, and it's something he would want, and he said he would. So we actually return results to the NHS. Here's the BRCA2 mutation again. And we started to do something else down here. Don't worry about the technical detail. We've begun to tell you about when medicines come against your genome when they could cause harm. So this is a change in your DNA that affects how you handle uh, medicines called 5-fluorouracillin capsidabin used in cancer. And so this is the opportunity to change uh, adverse effects from the therapies, and this is quite common in cancer. We're also using this information to map patients for trials. 
and then connecting the clinician to the trial and also connecting the investigator to the clinician so that people do not miss on opportunities to participate in studies. We also brought live the sequencing of TB organisms, particularly multidrug resistance. And each month now in the NHS, they sequence 1,000 TB organisms to make the diagnosis and then 24 hours later to tell which uh, medicine the person will respond to. So I've dealt with that one. This is the coalition of researchers. Here they are from 24 countries. And they have access to all of this data in our data center. And they've won a lot of grants. They've done very well, over 50% grant awards. So they're working very hard now on the data to drive up its value for clinical care. We also work, as I mentioned, through a discovery forum with about 100 companies, and these all have things that are of healthcare benefit. So in accordance with our informed consent, we don't work with people who are not interested in benefiting the health of our nation and people around the world. And more recently, we bought this live, which is the National Genomic Medicine Service. So we've got the Genomic Medicine Centres here. We've got seven new lab hubs. There's one here in Cambridge, for east of England. We will concentrate the entire nation's uh, genomic data in a data centre for the NHS, but also uh, everybody will be offered the opportunity to consent for a search. And we'll continue to provide the whole genomes uh, sequenced and interpreted by us, and partnerships that are academic or industry. And what we did to do this was reprofile 300,000 tests, upgrade 25% to new technologies, and bring live half a million whole genomes sequenced from NHS patients over the next five years. And this is funded by the government. So recently, our Secretary of State for Health, and I probably shouldn't have shown you as many politicians as I have, because you're probably not entirely happy with them right now. Uh, but here's another one, just in case you need reminding. Uh, so this, he's uh, very taken by this area. And as, one thing I will say is the current government, whatever else they've done, uh, they have uh, fully backed this program. And I can tell you that because I've been through two prime ministers, two Secretary of States for Health, and I'm on my sixth health minister. Amazing I'm still here. Uh, but anyway, uh, they have committed to an ambition of 5 million genomes of one sort or another over the next five years. And we can debate in questions what they'll be, but a million of them are already funded, and others will be from routine testing. And then there's an opportunity for us to consult with both experts and the public on what we should do and how we should use those data. And I'll be kicking off that consultation uh, starting next week, and it will come out for public consultation a bit later. So, we've brought live a genomic medicine service that provides the first time equitable access for 55 million people. It's standardised. There's a national test directory covering all of the aspects. We're building a single knowledge base because individuals like you, your information helps others. And we are a nation of altruistic humans and we want to advance our own health and also the health of others. So not everybody will want to do that. But if the data is consented, it will become available for research and there's an ambition for five million tests. But we can't do this alone. We need to, even in these troubled times, assemble a global coalition of research intellects to drive up the value of this for our patients here in the National Health Service. And here are the most important people in the project, and that's definitely not me. These are the participants, and they want you to see them because they're very grateful, even though many of them have not received an answer yet. They just know that somebody is looking out for them and trying to get them that answer. So I'd like to thank you for being here. I'd like to thank David for being my partner. And I think it's now time to take any questions. If you want to get in touch, please do. Thank you very much for having me. Questions from you? There's a gentleman there. 
we'll try and get as many in as we can. Um, I have a sort of question about palliative care and this uh, idea that the genome can give you lots of possibilities. And possibilities sometimes can be a danger because there are cases of people who yes. are in the last stage of their life and somebody says, oh, you can try this treatment. And rather than them leaving them a little bit left, uh, yep. if they're happy with their family, they go to this treatment. And rather than leaving three months yep. happily, so, they, leave, they yep. can leave one week. So you're a thousand percent right in what you've just said, which is that it sometimes, at that stage, the disease advanced. If we are uh, extending life by a week or two, which sometimes happens in this setting, we must ask ourselves, both as patients or members of society, or me as a doctor, whether that is a good thing to do, especially because some of these medicines make you feel quite unwell. So you've raised a very important point, which we bring into play in every way we use this information. Because if we don't, then we will be giving people false hope and the wrong idea about what might happen. So it's very important how we deploy this information. But my ambition is to get cancer earlier and cure it as far as we can and not let it get to that advanced state. There's a question down here and there's another hand up just there. So, Okay, and then we'll come down there. I believe I understood you right, correctly that this, all this information you're discovering is publicly available. Yes, it's available it's to scientists. It's also available to private organisations. Yes. So could we see any private organisations sending me a full DNA scan for whatever they want to charge for it, and then scan my whole, my whole sequence to say yes. all these things that you found actually yeah. you It's a really important point. Okay, so we are a free at point of care health system and Genomics England is working with the NHS. So we're not working with private suppliers other than we work with this partnership. But we couldn't have done this without a company that provided the sequencing because we didn't have that technology. The answer to your question is the companies work like the academics alongside the researchers in the same environment. And they can only take away summary level data. Uh, and they're using that to develop new diagnostic tests, new medicines, and that's the basis on which they can have access to the data. And they also pay for their access, which allows us to do more for the people who are involved in the program or who will be involved in the future. So we're trying to create a virtuous circle out of this. And this is a way that we get new anti-cancer drugs or new therapies for rare disease. So the five million that you're hoping to sign this will be people that have got no symptoms? Uh, your, your no, 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 no. So um, the five million that we're talking about here will be overwhelmingly focused on disease areas where we haven't addressed the problem right now. So our reason to exist is to help the NHS to do this better. So the five million will be anchored in the NHS 10-year plan and the priorities put there. We should go, there was a gentleman's hand up there and then we need to come down the front. Sorry, David, you should take over. Can I ask uh, how important the issue of consent is? It, would, would you be a uh, much better position if the level of consent was much higher, or, or was that not really a, a problem for you? Well, um, that, that, that's a really good question. So I think it's very important if you... So our proposition is that your genome is your genome, you've donated it to me. 
So my duty is to tell you what I'm intending to do with that genome so that you can decide whether you actually want to give me the genome in the first place. So we, when we started, the process to obtain consent was quite long and took a lot of time. But with our participant panel, we have reduced that considerably, and now it's quite quick to do. But I think it's very important that each of us knows when we engage in something like this what we're signing up to. It's one thing to go to the NHS for a test and someone say, I'm going to do a blood test and, and you know, like me, I, I'm only certain what it is because I know what the blood test is when they say it, but sometimes I'm sure people here feel that they're not sure what the blood test is uh, and, uh, you know, they don't know. In this setting, we're also going to do research, so it's very important that we ask the patients and explain to them what we're doing. So in the NHS Germany Service, there's two components to this. There's your patient choice, which you have about any test we offer you in the NHS. You can choose not to have it, that's your right. And then there's a second component to that process, which is the informed consent. So we've made it a dual process that will go into the NHS from July 2019. And there was a question Can I down. pick up on a clarification yeah, both for that question and the previous question? Uh, in that uh, Mark highlighted the partnership they have with us as a company. Yeah. But actually, we do not keep any of the data. We oh, delete yeah, the data right. the moment it is acknowledged by Genomic Kingdom as having been received. Uh, so we have custody just for the during the duration of the process, and we hand over custody back to Genomic mm. England for the data. Uh, we, therefore, if we are to have access as Illumina, uh, we actually apply with this, exactly the same routes as anybody else, uh, public or private, to get access to the data for collaboration purposes, uh, which means that the consent kind of covers that sort of element. Of it. So who, who does my data go to? Uh, and we, I hope we made that very clear, but just in case we don't, yeah. uh, it's important to, to recognise. We've already worked through this partnership and Illumina's whole policy on handling data to make sure it does fit yes. what people, I think, need to know and, and need to feel comfortable consenting to. Now, there was a question here at the front. I need to invite more women to put their hands up. The gender balance here is not looking good. Oh, I see you. There you are. Okay, so there's a lady at the back and there's a lady over here. Please. So there are quite a lot of international collaborations. In fact, actually, um, we're driving a number of them. So we have a major partnership with France, uh, an organization called France Genomic. And what we're doing together is standardizing this and optimizing the technologies outside the program so we can consider bringing more things in to add value and depth. We also have a partnership with Australian Genomes, which is a similar project. And we've had some discussions with US uh, centers. The US health system is not favorable to doing this type of thing in some ways because it's divided into private insurers and suppliers. However, they are doing this at scale and there's very large studies in the US. We're seeking to form collaborations where we could connect our data center virtually through a pipe where analysis could be run in two locations so the data doesn't leave the country of origin, but we could benefit from that so your data remains secure, it's in the data center you thought it was in, and we can still bring new advantages to you. And we have to do that in rare disease because sometimes we only have a few families in Britain and we can't solve them. And there was a lady at the back there, please. I come as a potential patient. Um, I've been diagnosed, well, I haven't been diagnosed, I've got my diagnosis, muscle condition. Um, I'm going to 
It's you're in, so first of all, for, the, for something like this, you're in a great location because there's many good minds here. Well, you don't need me to tell you that. But also, Addenbrooke's a very strong activity in rare inherited diseases or rare diseases, full stop. So the answer is at the moment, we, we're not enrolling any more people right now. But when we do the five million, we will be. So depending on the timing, uh, but of course, you will have access, if it's appropriate, to any test that's in the National Test Directory. And obviously, we shouldn't talk directly about what's happening with you, but it could be that you will get uh, an opportunity to be involved, and I, I don't know enough to say. But the opportunity will be there around a group of diseases we bought live, and then we are going to get some more funds to do the rest, the rest of the ambition. And actually, one of the focuses, which is one of the things you've raised, is I would like to see that focused on cases we don't solve from routine medicine to see, and I don't know the answer, whether doing a genome would bring an advantage in an earlier stage. Certainly in rare disease, we've seen that advantage. Thanks so much. No problem. There's a question here, and then and we've got another lady over there. So we've restored gender balance now. Can we so, get a microphone up there? Thanks. Yeah, because we've only got a minute or two before we're leaving the building. Uh, it's my question is very similar along the lines of the lady above there. Um, how one can um, get involved whether you have a disease or you don't. And it sounds like you're not taking any more. Not, not at the moment, but I'm hoping that later this year we will be. And it would be via the NHS? Yes. Yes. Our um, primary mode of operation is through the NHS. We're here to make it. We exist to do the things the NHS can't do because it's so focused on routine care, but to bring a level of innovation that allows people with something that could be beneficial to their health to gain an opportunity. There are other research cohorts that are happening. There is a separate 5 million cohort, which is about early detection of disease, and that will be starting again later this year. So there's two things going on. I'm really focused on disease. A gentleman asked me earlier about volunteers who are healthy. There will be a volunteer cohort of 5 million, and that will be spread across the UK. So there'll be the opportunities to join that and potentially uh, uh, be part of it. So there's a lady over there. Yeah. And the, is there another one? Yeah, we've got one. My question is more about the data itself. Yes. So is Illumina going to partner with existing databases like Omen to make a database? Are they going to make their own comprehensive database? Uh, no. Uh, it's very much we are looking to partner, and we do partner with the publicly available databases. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. It touches on the earlier uh, answer I added in, in the sense of where is Illumina on data management? And clearly, it's a rich source of information for the future. Um, but we have taken the decision that all information we generate from our own studies, and I showed some of the others earlier, will be submitted to the public databases. Uh, so ClinVar and ClinGen, ClinGen in particular, has just been approved by the FDA as a curated so a source of curated information for gene variants and gene uh, annotations. And we contribute. We work with them to increase and enrich the public database. As we then make tools to interpret genomes in other applications, indeed with other countries, we form the same collaborations, uh, we share our collaborations, uh, then, then uh, we, we'd like to maintain a, a really rigorous role in terms of downloading information from public sources in order to provide it to others. Uh, uh, rather than having any particular 
uh, proprietary position on data at all, whether it's the patient's data I mentioned, we delete those, or whether it's the information we glean from the patients, it all uh, is destined to go in the public domain and does go in the public domain promptly. And we support that too. And we also support the following, that we will make available variants without necessarily much clinical information, so you couldn't identify anybody unless you had other samples and knew the person. But individual variants and describe how frequent they are in our resource, and we will put them into the public databases. It's very important that we do not squirrel this data away and, as a, a free point-of-care system, then pay to get it back. Uh, that's not right, and I will not be doing that ever. Is there another one down there? One up there. Just behind you there, microphone. Um, who's, who's, who's next? Who's got the microphone? <laughs> um, was there another there one over there? There's a shirt there, halfway down. Okay. You go first. Yeah. Uh, having such a vast database of the genome, is there any possible, possible danger of having any terrorist uh, attack? Yes, there is always a danger of some sort of attack. So any sensible person who has such a data center has a disaster recovery uh, plan, which we do. And our data is stored in more than one location in the United Kingdom. It's just that those data sets are refreshed, but they're dormant. So nothing's happening in them. They are back up if a plane hits our data center. Our data center is actually uh, in um, uh, an area of a nuclear bunker, uh, which is the nuclear bunker for the government, which is 4,000-person village, which sits in the uh, stone in near Corsham in the uh, rock there. So it's actually pretty robust, uh, as you might imagine. And it also is relatively eco-friendly because it's over mine shafts where it was a quarry in there, and it draws its own cold air up and self-circulates. So we don't spend a lot of your money on fans to cool the data down. Because if you have a big data centre, it gets very, very hot. You could cook on it if you didn't manage the heat. But to answer your question, Anybody sensible has a disaster recovery plan. The data has to be geographically separated by enough distance to be able to be recoverable in the face of a, a catastrophe. And, and anyone sensible would do that. Do you also test for cyber attacks? Yes, we do. We employ a company that attempts to break in several times a year and they haven't managed <laughs> yet. Now, but there is an important point here for, the, for, for all of you. There's no one who can stand in front of you in the internet age and absolutely guarantee that somebody won't get into the data at some point. You cannot guarantee that. What you can do is use your absolute best endeavor, which is what we do. We pay for the most advanced cybersecurity that we can find, and we put it in our data center. But it's important that we accept the internet age, and there is a risk in doing that. And I just need to be honest about that risk. Though, so far, so good, he says. Maybe that's not wood, but I'll touch it anyway. Uh, there was one more question, and then we really must stop, because. Uh, I can see the gentleman wants us to do something else with our lives. Okay. Yeah, um, I heard recently about Google using um, sort of big data analytic techniques across, yes. um, you know, matching up sets of um, symptoms to possible combinations of drug interactions, and they've made some really big discoveries on that. Yes. I was wondering if um, there's any similar 
to discoveries going on for you across the data rather than just uh, rather than for individuals? You, you raise a really important point. So this is using something called artificial intelligence where the computer self-learns once it's got to a certain level of knowledge. And an example of that is a work that Google DeepMind did with Moorfields Hospital where they looked at the scans of the back of the eye. And what happened was within, once the software got trained, within one day it could tell you how old you were, within two days it could tell you the gender, and in three days it had found something at the back of the eye that's not visible to humans. And this is a digital signature of ones and noughts. And the ones and noughts correlated with all the people with more progressive sight loss. So we could tell those people who would be in trouble earlier and who would be more likely to progress. These sorts of things have to be applied in healthcare because we've got to get insights into the data. We're very careful about who we work with in this space. And clearly, we want to use artificial intelligence on these data to make the most value for healthcare. I'm confident what that will do is bring us insights that we wouldn't imagine maybe for some time to come because we've got the data set assembled. It's together in one place, and it's been standardized. And then we can learn that way and bring that into healthcare. And that is an ambition of the 10-year plan, to bring more intelligent ways of using health data and, and stopping what we're doing. If a child born today will regularly be a centenarian, we have to do our health system somewhat differently. We've got to live longer, healthier, and actually enjoy life. That's obviously personal choice. But if we can use methods to detect risk of disease that allow you to know about those risks and take an action, you have a choice. It's an opportunity. You may choose not to take that action. That's your decision. But you might choose to take that action and as a result have five years healthy, more life. I think on that note, um, if you'd like to